Mary Slusser of Calabar, Pioneer Missionary by W.P. Livingston. Third Phase The Conquest of Okiang. Chapter 1 The Tribe of Terrorists. Sometime in the dim past, a raiding force had swept down from the mountains to the east of Calabar, entered the triangle of dense forest land formed by the junction of the Cross and Calabar Hires, fought and defeated the Ibibos, who dwelt there, and taken possession of the territory. They were of the tribe of the Okiang, believed to be an outpost, probably the most westerly outpost of the Bantu race of Central and South Africa, who had thrust themselves forward like a wedge into the land. Physically, they were of a higher type than the people of Calabar. They were taller and more muscular. Their nose was higher. The mouth and chin were firmer. Their eyes were more fearless and piercing, and their general bearing contrasted strongly with that of the people of the coast. To their superior bodily development, they added the worst qualities of heathenism. There was not a phase of African devilry in which they were not indulgent. They were openly addicted to witchcraft and the sacrifice of animals. They were utterly lawless and contemptuous of authority. Among themselves, slave-stealing, plunder of property, theft of every kind went on indiscriminately. To survive in the struggle of life, a man required to possess wives and children and slaves. In the abundance of these lay his power. But if through incompetence or sickness or misfortune he failed, he was regarded as the lawful prey of the chief nearest him. To weaken the house of a neighbor was as clear a duty as to strengthen one's own. Oppression and outrage were of common occurrence. So suspicious were they even of each other that the chiefs and the retainers lived in isolated clearings, with armed scouts constantly on the watch in all the pathways, and they ate and worked with their weapons ready to their hands. Even Igbo law, with all of its power, was often resisted by the slaves and women regardless of the consequences. No free Igbo man would submit to be dictated to by the Igbo drum sent by another. A fine might be imposed, but he would sit unsubdued and sullen, and then obtain his revenge by seizing or murdering some passing victim. But all combined in a common enmity against other tribes, and the region was enclosed with a fence of terrorism as impenetrable as a ring of steel. The Calabar people were hated because of the favored position they enjoyed on the coast, and their wealth and power, and a state of chronic war existed with them. Each sought to outrival the other in the number of heads captured or the number of slaves stolen or harbored, and naturally there was no end to the fighting. All efforts to bring them together in the interests of trade had been in vain. Even British authority was defied, and messages from the council were ignored or treated with contempt. They had their own idea of justice and judicial methods, and trials by ordeal formed the test of innocence or guilt, the two commonest being by burning oil and poison. In the one case, a pot was filled with palm oil, which was brought to the boil. The stuff was poured over the hands of the prisoner, and if the skin became blistered, he was adjudged to be guilty and punished. In the other case, the Assyri bean, the product of a vine, was pounded and mixed with water and drunk. If the body ejected the poison, it was a sign of innocence. The method was the surest and least troublesome, for the investigation, sentence, and punishment were carried out simultaneously unless the witch-doctor had been influenced, which sometimes happened, for there were various means of manipulating the test. These tests were applied when it was desired to discover a thief, or when a village wanted to know whose spirit dwelt in the leopard that slew a goat, or when a chief wished to prove that his wife was faithful to him in her heart, but chiefly in cases of sickness or death. 
They believed that sickness was unnatural and that death never occurred except from extreme old age. When a freed man became ill or died, sorcery would be alleged. The witch doctor would be called in and he would name one individual after another. All bond and free were chained and tried and there would be much grim merriment as the victims writhed in agony and their heads were chopped off. The skulls would be kept in the family as trophies. Occasionally, the relations of the victims would be powerful enough to take exception to the summary procedure and seek redress by force of arms, and a vendetta would reign for years. If a man or woman were blamed for some evil deed, an appeal could be made to the law of substitution, and a sufficient number of slaves could be furnished as would be equivalent for themselves, and these would be killed in their stead. The eldest son of a freed house, for instance, could be spared by the sacrifice of the life of a younger brother. The fact that a man's position in the spirit world was determined by his rank and wealth in this one demanded the sacrifice of much life when chiefs died. A few months before Mary went up amongst them, a chief of moderate means died, and with him were buried eight slave men, eight slave women, ten girls, ten boys, and four free wives. These were in addition to the men and women who died as a result of taking the poison ordeal. Even when death was due to natural decay, the retinue provided was the same. After her settlement, she made careful inquiry and found that the number of lives sacrificed annually at the instance of this custom could not have averaged fewer than 150 within a radius of 20 miles, while the same number must have died from ordeals and decapitation on charges of causing sickness. To these had to be added the number killed in the constant warfare. Infanticide was also responsible for much destruction of life. Twin murder was practiced with an even fiercer zeal than it had been in Calabar. Child life in general was of little value. It was significant of the state of the district that gin, guns, and chains were practically the only articles of commerce that entered in. Gin or rum was in every home. It was given to every babe. All work was paid for in it. Every fine and debt could be redeemed with it. Every visitor had to be treated to it. Everyone drank it, and many drank it all the time. Quarrels were the outcome of it, and the guns came into play. After that, the chains and the padlocks. Women were often the worst where drink was concerned. There were certain bands formed of those born in the same year who were allowed freer action than others. They could handle gun and sword and were useful for patrol and fighting purposes, and were so powerful that they compelled concessions from Igbo. They exacted fines for breach of their rules, and feasted and drank and danced for days and nights at a time at the expense of the offenders. Such lawlessness and degradation at the very doors had long caused the Calabar Presbytery much thought. Efforts had been made to enter the districts both from the Cross and Calabar rivers. In one of his tours of exploration, Mr. Eggerly was seized, with the object of being held for a ransom of rum, and it was only with difficulty that he escaped. Others were received less violently though every member of the tribe was going about with guns on full cock. Asked why, they said, inside or outside, speaking, eating, or sleeping. We must have them ready for use. We trust no man. When they learned of the new laws in Calabar, their amazement was unbounded. Killing for witchcraft prohibited, they exclaimed. What steps have been taken to prevent the witchcraft from killing? Wives not compelled to sit for more than a month in seclusion and filth? Outrageous. Twins of their mothers taken to Duketown? Horrible. Has no calamity happened? Very little result was achieved from these tours of observation. The Calabar teacher was ultimately induced to settle amongst them, but after a shooting affray was compelled to fly for his life. Missionaries, however, are never daunted by difficulties, nor do they acquiesce in defeat. Ever, like their master, they stand at the door and knock. 
Once again, the challenge was taken up, and this time by a woman. So difficult was the position that the negotiations for Miss Lester's settlement lasted a year. Three times parties from the mission went up, she accompanying them, only to find the people, every man, woman, and child, armed and sullen, and disinclined to promise anything. I had often a lump in my throat, she wrote, and my courage repeatedly threatened to take wings and fly away, though nobody guessed it. At last, in June 1888, in spite of her fear, she resolved to go up and make final arrangements for her sojourn. Chapter 2 In the Royal Canoe She went up the river in state. Ever ready to do her a kindness, King Eoy had provided her with the royal canoe, a hollow tree trunk twenty feet long, and she lay in comfort under the cool cover of a framework of palm leaves, freshly lopped from the tree and shut off from the crew by a gaudy curtain. Beneath was a pile of Brussels carpet, and about her were arranged no fewer than six pillows, for the well-to-do natives of Calabar made larger and more skillful use of these than the Europeans. The scene was one of quiet beauty. There was a clear sky and a windless air. The banks of the river, high and dense masses of vegetation, glowed with color. The broad sweep of water was like a sheet of molten silver, and shimmered and eddied to the play of the gleaming puddles. As they moved easily and swiftly along, the paddlemen, dressed in loincloth and singlet, improvised a blithe song in her praise. Strange and primitive as were the conditions, she felt she would not have exchanged them for all the luxuries of civilization. She needed sustenance, for there was trying work before her, and this a paraffin stove, a pot of tea, a tin of stewed beef, and a loaf of homemade bread gave her. Wise mental preparation also she needed, for there were elements of uncertainty and danger in the situation. The Okiyong might be on the warpath. Her paddlers were their sworn enemies. A tactless word or act might ruin the expedition. As the canoe glided along the river, she communed with God and in the end left the issue with him. Man, she thought, can do nothing with such a people. Arriving at the landing beach, she made her way by a forest track to a village of mud huts called Iken, four miles inland. Her reception was a noisy one. Men, women, and children thronged about her and called her mother, and they seemed pleased at her courage at coming alone. The chief, Edom, one of the aristocrats of Okyang, was sober, but his neighbor at Ifako, two miles farther on, whom she wished to meet, was unfit for human company, and she was not allowed to proceed. She stayed the night at Ikeng, where she gathered the king's boys about her to hold family worship. The crowd of semi-naked people standing curiously watching the proceedings exclaimed in wonder as they heard the words repeated in unison, God so loved the world, and so on. At ten o'clock the women were still holding her fast in talk. One, the chief sister, called Maimi, attracted her. I think she said she would be my friend, and be an attentive hearer of the gospel. Wearied at last with the strain, she was forced to retire into the hut set apart for her. A shot next morning startled the village. Two women on going outside had been fired at from the bush. In a moment every man had his gun and sword and was searching for the assailant. Mary went with one of the parties, but to find anyone in such a labyrinth was impossible, and the task was given up. Going to Ifako, she interviewed the chiefs. The charm of her personality, her frankness, her fearlessness, won them over, and they promised her ground for a schoolhouse. Would she ask the same privilege be extended to it as to the mission buildings in Calabar? Would it be a place of refuge for criminals? Those charged with her witchcraft are those liable to be killed for the dead, 
until their case could be taken into consideration? They assented. And the house she would build for herself would also be a harbor of refuge? Again, they assented. She thanked them and probably went and chose two sites, what one at Inkang and one at Efako, about twenty to thirty minutes walk apart, according to the state of the track, in order that the benefits of the concession might operate over as wide an area as possible. She foresaw, however, that as they were an agricultural and shifting people, and spread over a large extent of territory, she would require to be constantly traveling, and to sleep as often in a hammock as in her bed. Rejoicing over the improved prospects, she set out on the return journey to Creektown. It was the rainy season, and ere long the canoe ran into a deluge, and she was soaked. Then the tide was so strong that they had to lie in a cove for two hours. The carcass of a huge snake drifted past, followed by a human body. She was on the outlook for alligators, but only saw crowds of crabs on the rotten tree trunks and black mud fighting as fiercely as the Okyong people. She was too watchful to sleep, but she heard the boy say softly, Don't shake the canoe and wake Ma, or speak lower and let Ma sleep. When they were once more out of the river she slumbered, and awoke to find the lights of Creektown shining through the darkness. When her friends saw her packing her belongings, they looked at her in wonder and pity. They said she was going on a forlorn hope, and that no power on earth could subdue the Okyong, save a console and a gunboat. But she smiled and went on with her preparations. King Ioi again offered his canoe and paddlers, and a number of bearers for her baggage. By Friday evening, August 3, 1888, all was ready, and she lay down to rest, but not to sleep. On the morrow she would enter on the great adventure of her life, and the strangeness of it, the seriousness of it, the possibilities it might hold for her, kept her awake and thoughtful throughout the night. Chapter 3 the adventure of taking possession. The dawn came to Creek Town gray and wet. The rain fell in torrents, and the people moving about with the packages grumbled and quarreled. Wearied and unrefreshed after her sleepless night, Mary was not in the best of spirits. She was glad to see King Ioi, who had come to supervise the loading and packing of the canoe. His kind eyes, cheery smile, and sympathetic words did her good, and her courage revived. Few of the natives wished her Godspeed. One young man said with a sob in his voice, I will constantly pray for you, but you are courting death. That great faith for a Christian, perhaps. But her own faith at the moment was not so strong that she could afford to cast a stone at him. As the hours wore on, air of depression became general, and when the party was about to start, Mr. Goldie suddenly decided to send one of the mission staff to accompany her on the journey. Mr. Bishop, the printer who was standing by, volunteered, and there and then stepped into the canoe. Mary and her retinue of five children stowed themselves into a corner, paddlers pushed off, and the canoe swept up the river and disappeared in the rain. The light was fading ere they reached the landing beach before Inking, and there was yet the journey of four miles through the dripping forest to be overtaken. It was decided that she should go on ahead with the children in order to get them food and put them to sleep and that Mr. Bishop and one or two men should follow with dry clothes, cooking utensils, and the window and door needed for the hut, whilst the carriers would come on later with the loads. As Mary faced the forest, now dark and mysterious, and filled with the noises of night, a feeling of helplessness and fear came over her. What unseen perils might she not meet? What would she find at the end? How would she be received on this occasion? Would the natives be fighting, or drinking, or dancing? Her heart played the coward. 
she felt a desire to turn and flee. But she remembered that never in her life had God failed her. Not once had there been cause to doubt the reality of his guidance and care. Still, the shrinking was there. She could not even move her lips in prayer. She could only look up and utter inwardly one appealing word, Father. Surely no stranger procession had footed it through the African forest. First came a boy about eleven years of age, tired and afraid, a box containing tea, sugar, and bread upon his head, his garments soaked with the rain clinging to his body, his feet slipping in the black mud. Behind him was another boy, eight years old, in tears, bearing a kettle and pots. With these a little fellow of three, weeping loudly, tried hard to keep up, and close at his heels totted a maiden of five, also shaken with sobs. Their white maw formed the rear. On one arm was slung a bundle, and astride her shoulders had a baby girl, no light burden, so that she had to pull herself along with the aid of branches and twigs. She was singing nonsense, snatches to lighten the way for the little ones, but tears were perilously near her own eyes. Had ever such a company marched out against the entrenched forces of evil? Surely God had made a mistake in going to Okiyang in such a guise. And yet he often chooses the weakest things of this world to confound and defeat the mighty. The village was reached at last. But instead of the noise and confusion that form a bush welcome, there was absolute stillness. Mary called out, and two slaves appeared. They stated that the chief's mother, Adifako, had died that morning and all the people had gone to the carnival. One obtained the fire and a little water, while the other made off to carry the news that the white woman had arrived. She undressed the children and hushed them to sleep, and sat in her white garments and waited. When Mr. Bishop arrived, it was to say that the men were exhausted, and refused to bring up anything that night. A woman of weaker fiber and feebler faith would have been in despair. Mary acted with her usual decision. The glow of the fire was cheerful and the singing of the kettle tempting. But the morrow was Sunday. There was no food. The children were naked, and she herself wet to the skin. She gave one of the lads who had arrived with Mr. Bishop a lantern, and dispatched him to the beach with a peremptory message that the men must come at once and bring what they could. But knowing their character, she asked Mr. Bishop to collect some of the slaves who had been left to watch the farms, and then send them after her as carriers, and then bootless and hatless she plunged back into the forest. She had not gone far before one of the other lads came running after her to keep her company, a touch of chivalry which pleased and comforted her. So dense was the darkness that she often lost sight of her companion's white clothes, and was constantly stumbling and falling. The shrilling of the insects, the pulsation of the fireflies, the screams of the night birds, and the flapping of their wings, the cries of wild animals, and the rush of dark objects, the falling of decaying branches all intensified the weirdness and mystery of the forest gloom. Even the echo of their own voices as they called aloud to frighten the beast of prey struck on their ears with peculiar strangeness. By and by came an answer to the cries, and a glimmer of light shined in the darkness. It was the lad with the lantern. As she had surmised, he had failed in his mission. She moved swiftly to the river, splashed into the water and reached the canoe, threw back the cover under which the men were sleeping, and routed them out, dazed and shamefaced. So skillful, however, was she in managing these dusky giants that in a short time, weary as they were, they were working good-humouredly at the boxes. With the assistance of the slaves who came on the scene, they transferred what was needed to Ikenj, and by midnight she felt that the worst was over. Sunday did not find her in more cheerful mood. 
Her tired limbs refused to move, and the wounds she had been unconscious of in the excitement of the journey made themselves felt, while her feet were in such a state that for six weeks afterwards she was unable to wear boots. Whether it was the persistent rain and the mud and the weariness and the squalid surroundings, or the fact that the tribe she had come to civilize and evangelize were given over to the service of the devil, or that her faith had weakened, or whether it was all these together, her first Sunday in Okyong was one of the saddest she ever experienced. More than once she was on the verge of tears. And yet she was eager to begin work. Prudence, however, held her back from visiting the scene of debauchery and fact. A few women had come home with fractious babies, or to procure more food for the revelers, and gathering these about her, she held a little service, telling them in her simple and direct way the story of the Christ who came from the unseen to make their lives sweeter and happier. It was the first faint gleam of a better day for Okyong. Chapter 4 Facing an Angry Mob the room allotted to Mary was one of those in the woman's yard, or harem, of Edom the chief, and had been previously used by a free wife, who had left its mud floor and mud walls in a filthy state. At one entrance she caused a door to be hung, while a hole was made in the wall, and a window frame fitted in. The work was rude, and gaps yawned round the sides, but she ensured sufficient privacy by draping them with bed covers. The absence of the villagers of Ifako gave her time to complete the work and with her own hands she filled in the spaces with mud. She also cleared a portion of the ground set apart for her and circled it with a fence, and within this she did her washing. But soon there were calls upon her. He took a little child and set him in the mist. Her work began with a child. In a fight between Okiyang and Calabar, a man of Ikeng had been beheaded. His head was recovered and sent home, thus removing the disgrace. But his wife did not survive the shock, and left a baby girl, which was now brought to Mary. It had been fed on a little water, palm oil, and cane juice. Enough. Its appearance provoked mirth in the yard, but she stooped down and lifted it, and took it in her heart, resolving to give it a double share of the care and comfort of which it had been defrauded. As she carried it about in her arms or sat with it on her lap, she was regarded with a kind of amused astonishment. But the old grandmother came and blessed her. At first the little child rallied to the new treatment. Sometimes Mary thought it looked bonny, but in a few days it drooped and died. The bodies of children were usually placed anywhere in the earth near the huts or under the bush by the wayside, but she dressed the tiny form in white and laid it in a provision box and covered it with flowers. A native carried the box to a spot which she had reserved in the yard. Here a grave was dug, and she stood beside it and prayed. The grandmother knelt at her feet, sobbing. Looking on in the distance, curious and scornful, were the revelers of Ifako. They had heard of the proceedings, and had come to witness the white woman's witchcraft. All that they said in effect when they saw the good box and the white robe was, Why this waste? And so the work in Okyang was consecrated by the death and Christian burial of a little child. When the people came crowding back from the devil-making, they sought out a young lad, who had detached himself from the orgies and remained in the village, where he had been very attentive to Mary. They accused him of deserting their ancient customs. She saw him standing in the midst near a pot of oil, which was being heated over a fire, and noticed the chief in front going through some mo movements, and the lad holding out his arms, but was unaware of what was taking place until she saw the man seize a ladle, plunge it into the boiling oil, and advance to the boy. In a moment the truth flashed upon her, and she darted forward, but it was too late. 
The stuff was poured over the boy's hands, and he shuddered in agony. It was doubtful whether her intervention at that early period would have done any good. They were following the law of the country, and if she had managed to prevent the act, they would probably have resorted to the ordeal thereafter in secret, and her object was to show them a better way. Immediately after this, the men of the village left on an expedition of revenge against a number of mourners with whom they had quarreled. A week of rioting followed. Then a freedman died in the neighborhood, and once more the village was deserted. Mary, meanwhile, moved hither and thither, making friends with the women, healing the sick, tending the children, and doing any little service that came in her way. The return to normal conditions brought her into active conflict with the powers of evil. The mistress of a harem in the vicinity bought a good-looking young woman whom the master coveted. She became a slave wife. She appeared sullen and unhappy. One afternoon, Mary saw her muddy in a house that was being built for a new freeborn wife, and spoke to her kindly in passing. A few minutes later, the girl made her way to one of the master's farms, and sat down in the hut of a slave. The latter was alarmed, knowing well the consequences would be, but she refused to move. The man went off to his work, and she walked into the forest and hanged herself. Next morning the slave was brought in heavy irons, and at a palavar the master and his relatives decreed he must die. They had been degraded by being associated in this way with a common slave. Mary, who was present, protested against the injustice of the sentence. The man, she argued, had done no wrong. It was not his fault the girl had gone into his hut. But, was the reply, he had used sorcery and put the thought into the girl's mind, and the witch-doctor had pronounced him guilty. She persisted. The crowd became angry and excited. They surged round her, demanding why a stranger who was there on sufferance should interfere with the dignity and power of freeborn people, and clamored for the instant death of the prisoner. Threats were shouted. Guns and swords were waved, and the position grew critical. But she stood her ground, quiet and cool and patient. Her tact, her good humor, that spiritual force which seemed to emanate from her in times of peril at last prevailed. The noise and confusion calmed down, and ultimately it was decided to spare the man's life. She had won her first victory, but the victim was loaded with chains, placed in the woman's yard, starved and then flogged, and his body cruelly cut in order to exercise the powers of sorcery that were in him. When Mary went to him, he was a bruised and bleeding heap of flesh, lying unconscious by the post to which he was fastened. The woman in the yard was sitting about him indifferent to his plight.